As I told you last time, when we began our study of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul's message has to do with two very important subjects, doctrine and devotion. Doctrine and devotion. These two realities, very important spiritual realities, always go together, though sometimes Christians seem to struggle with exactly how to relate the two to each other. We're going to look at both of these very important subjects again this morning, and we're going to do so by continually and over some special sermons about the coming day of the Lord, looking at the overall context of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and this theme of the day of the Lord. But I also want us to look backward a bit at a similar set of passages, which we'll look at somewhat today from 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, sort of trying to put everything together, all of it, of course, being biblical information, biblical doctrine, biblical revelation about the eventual coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you remember, I characterized Paul's teaching about the future return of Jesus Christ in two ways in our last message, and that was this, that the Apostle Paul has what I called a pleading mind, a pleading mind. In other words, he's warning these Thessalonians about not being deceived concerning wrong doctrine, wrong teaching, false things, which really accentuates this fact for all of us to know and believe and inculcate in our lives, and that is this, doctrine is extremely important. Doctrine is critical. You can't live as a Christian without doctrine. You can't reason as a believer without doctrine. You can't live without vital doctrine in your life. You'll shrivel up, and spiritually speaking, you'll become so susceptible to false doctrine that you will become one of those who could even be characterized as a castaway can't do it. Doctrine is important, critical, vital. And so Paul often pleads with the mind of believers to ascertain, to believe, to concretize. That's a favorite word of mine because it's so vivid in my own thinking. To, to so have such a concrete load of doctrine in your heart, your mind, so that you are not swayed by the false things of this world. So Paul pleads for the mind. And then correspondingly, he also does Paul have a pastoral heart. And I need to emphasize that because, as I said last time, there's so many people who assume that doctrine in and of itself is stuffy, bland, hard to figure out, hard to contemplate, hurts my brain to think about it, to to be able to put certain eschatological events together, to be able to know the truth, 
to live in it, to read, to study, to ponder. And Paul knows that. And so, right alongside the pleading of the mind for truth, for doctrine, comes Paul's pastoral heart for comfort. Now, those things ought not to be separated from one another, to be sure, but often in Christians' minds, they are. Christians often want to be, of course, comforted, encouraged, edified, strengthened, interceded for, encouraged by fellow believers, and even by the Word of God in passages that are so-called practical in nature as though there are some passages that are clearly and only doctrinal and other passages are clearly and only practical. And so I'll concentrate on the practical ideas of living the Christian life and the doctrine I'll leave to the theologians in their ivory towers. And to that I say, in fine British fashion, poppycock. Why? Because you cannot separate the two. All doctrine is inherently practical. And all practice can never quite come to its intended fruition without solid doctrine. It just can't. All practice is doctrine. And all doctrine is practical. Now, the challenge, of course, is for guys like me to show you how practical doctrine is. And it's, of course, my joy and task to help you see how doctrine is so practical and how when it's practiced, you can't live without doctrine. And so, Paul's pleading mind and his pastoral heart for doctrine and devotion are twin truths in which correspondingly must be integrated with each other. They must be. And they will, and they are, constantly. I dare to say that none of you, in endeavoring to live practically your Christian life, aren't automatically, even if you don't realize it, thinking about doctrine. And if you are one of those who likes to read, study, try to put things together comprehensively or systematically, you're also doing that if you are doing it rightly because you want it to change your life. You're not just wanting to do it to fill your head. You're not just wanting to do it so that you can be smarter than the other guy. You're not just doing it because you think that people will think better of you or think that you are a part of those who are really the solid intelligentsia of the church. None of that. None of that at all. Here's what Paul means, and it's very, very important. Before we can even get into eschatological things, the future, end times, and we are going to get into that, we're going to start next Lord's Day, hopefully, in verse 3 of chapter 2, where Paul says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? 
And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. I'll stop there. If you're like me, you're reading those verses and you're saying, what in the world does that mean? And when? And how? And upon whom? And for what purpose? And so I've been doing a bit of reading, I shall confess to you. Greater minds than myself. I mean, what about this revealing of verse 3? The man of lawlessness. The son of destruction. Who is he? Where does he come from? Well, it says here he's going to take his seat ultimately in the temple of God and proclaiming himself to be God. Who is that? The Antichrist? Is the Antichrist different from the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction? Is it the same one? And when Paul says in verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Well, did, did that mean you just told me those things audibly that are not in the pages of First Thessalonians, let's say? Or is there some hint of what he told them in First Thessalonians? And you say, well, that's pretty obvious. First Thessalonians 4 and 5 also talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ. However, what we just read in chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians is not in First Thessalonians 4 and 5. There are some aspects of what appears to be going together, but which is first? What's second? What's third? Are there stages of the Lord Jesus Christ coming? And is he talking uh, in these pages and with each phrase in a strict chronological fashion as though it were like this? Number one, this. Number two, this. Number three, this. Number four, this. Or does he skip around? Or does he summarize? Or does he make generalities? And if he does, what's first? What's second? What's third? What's fourth? These are not easy questions. And of course, there would be some of you who would automatically say, you see, that's what you're talking about with regard to that thing called doctrine. And some of it is pretty hard to understand, and when it gets to the place where my brain seems like it's swelling beyond recognition, I'll bow out. Oh, but then some of you say, no, I'm ready now just to jump in. I want to get my eschatological schema in the one, two, three fashion so that not only I can look pretty snazzy in my eschatology, but I can show some others what they need to know. Well, I think that's true to an extent, probably without that kind of attitude. But these are hard things. I told you last time, I may even quote for you next time, some of the most able commentators of this particular New Testament book or First and Second Thessalonians in general, and some of those uh, statements, even by the best of commentators, 
are some things like these. This is the hardest part in all of the 13 epistles of the Apostle Paul to interpret. So, you know, when you read something like that across the page, you begin immediately to bow in prayer because you want to be right. You want to do the right thing. You want to say the right thing. You want to teach the right thing, which means you better know the right thing, or at least as much as you can. And then, my friends, take your shot, knowing that you could be wrong because a boatload of Christians through the ages Nonetheless, those who are in our time and preaching probably right now, some of them on this very passage, and we're not in agreement. They see things differently. I, th- I see things differently than they do. And between the two polarities are a thousand more. Now, this is not meant to scare you. It's meant to ask all of us to buckle up because doctrine is very important. And I don't think this would be in our Bibles unless God thought it was important for us to know. Now, I know there's a tendency for someone to say, oh, no, but here's what I want. I want verse 16. That's all I want, nothing but that. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. That's all I need. That's my memory passage for today. But let me ask you a question. When it says there, our Lord Jesus Christ, practically speaking, you say, that's my Savior. I say to you, what does the word Savior mean? When it says the Lord Jesus Christ, what makes up his lordship according to the New Testament? You know, in that day, there were more Jesuses than this Jesus. Which one is he? Well, you say he's the man of Galilee. He's the Nazarene. Well, what does that mean? What are those cities? Where are they? Why was he born there? Well, because it's part of prophecy. Oh, prophecy. That's that doctrine thing we're getting back into. And and what does he come to do? If he's the Lord Jesus Christ, and if there's God our Father, and those two persons loved us and gave us eternal comfort, in what sense were we given eternal comfort? Is this talking about salvation? Is this talking about the, the comfort of our sanctification, but not including our initial justification? Oh, and by the way, what does the word justification mean? And you know, you threw around that word sanctification. What does that mean? That's a big word. You see the problem? The problem is, in all the practical passages, it's loaded with doctrine. And in all of the doctrinal sections, there are landmines aplenty. So what do we do? Well, we strap on our minds, we gird up our loins for action, and we say to ourselves, I simply want to be a sincere student of the Word, seeing that both doctrine and devotion are equally important. And out of such doctrine, I want to become, practically speaking, a noble Christian. That's all I ask. just want to be a noble Christian. Added to that, my friends, is another dilemma. And that dilemma 
is even more ferocious. It's not just you taking your Bible and seeing what's in the Scripture and studying it and memorizing it and wanting to know it. Those are all very noble tasks, and they're important tasks, and they're necessary tasks. And if you don't do that, you'll be impoverished Christians. But there's also something equally at work, and this is ferocious. Satan and his minions don't want you to do what I just said. Spiritual warfare is real. Satan is alive and well on planet Earth, and he comes to kill and destroy. He's the thief. And he wants to take out of your mind, if he could, if God were to allow him to, so that you would not only be an impoverished Christian, but you would be a shipwrecked person. So in all of our desire to be noble Christians and find out a basic schema of the eschaton, future things, the end of the world, end times, even if you just said, look, I just want a basic sketch. I don't want to get in all the weeds, or at least the weeds that will get me confused, but here's what I want to do. I want a basic sketch of how to know what's coming in the future. Fair enough. But then, when you read these pages, you realize something. You're not the only one who's trying to receive from certain sources the kind of rock-solid biblical doctrine that's going to show you the end times, or any other Christian doctrine for that matter. And you know what was happening in Thessalonica, the very city in which this letter and 1 Thessalonians were written? Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you, the first part of verse 3, in any way. Now, if you're like me, you're saying, you know, the first part of your message this morning was, I think, encouraging. This is not. This is not encouraging. Because we're talking about someone who wants to destroy my soul. Someone who wants to mislead me. Someone who wants to deceive me. And if they thought they could, deceive the whole Christian world. So we, we, need to, we need to arm ourselves. We need to protect ourselves. We need to know the very face of the enemy. You say, not me, <laughs> not me. I want to be as far away from seeing the face of the enemy as I possibly can. Well, I understand the sentiment, except for this, that Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that when the Corinthians weren't doing both doctrinally and practically what they ought to be doing, Paul says this, I'm afraid that you are ignorant of the schemes of Satan. Now that is so interesting, isn't it? Because what does that imply? 
That implies that you and I should not be ignorant of the schemes of Satan. So you got to jump in. And sometimes even in that deep end of the pool, you got to jump in and you see the guy in the face who wants to take with his hands your head and push you down in that water until you can breathe no more. He's real. He's cunning. He will seek to kill and destroy. He's the, he's the one from the very beginning who was the cunning serpent in the garden. And he's not finished until he's vanquished by God himself. And apparently, he walked into the Thessalonian church. You say, Satan himself? No, he has minions. He has minions to help him. And Paul gives us an example of three ways, three ways that Satan will come into the church. You see it there in verse 2? Don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarm. And then notice these three, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. And the doctrinal teaching of whoever this is and whatever they're doing and whatever form they're taking to deceive is to teach you that the effect of such teaching is that the day of the Lord has come. Now, perhaps Paul wants them to know that you, because of my prior teaching to you, my both audio ministry, my verbal teaching to you, and now through these letters, that you know that's not right because I've already told you that certain things must come, which then begs the question, well, then why are they alarmed? I mean, if Paul, the great apostle Paul, has already warned them and taught them both verbally and now in the written page, then why are they alarmed? Why, why are they shaken up? Why, is this just sort of a in case it comes? I don't think so. I think this is happening in real time. And I think it's happening because false teachers are always abounding to do such things. Always. And somehow, even though Paul has taught them and taught them well, and even though they've received it, probably again both verbally and the written page, by this very letter as the substantiation of such a thing, they're still alarmed. They're shaken. And now he's heard from Timothy undoubtedly that they are alarmed and are shaken and he's writing this letter to show them it's me, Paul. Don't be shaken about others who are coming into the flock and trying to deceive you. Which then begs this question and this will be the bulk of our time this morning. How do you discern between a spirit a spoken word or a letter seemingly from one of God's own apostles, one of the, own, the very own apostles of Jesus Christ himself, how do you discern between the two? You and I know that false doctrine abounds in our world. Ever been on social media lately? It's all over the place. It's infiltrated churches. It's all around us. It's all about us. 
The same thing that's happening in the first century is continuing to happen in the 21st century because Satan is alive and well. He's doing his ghastly deeds. He's trying to deceive. He's trying to promote false doctrine. And it's happening right here in real time in Thessalonica. And Paul gives three ways that it's happening. Look at the first one. He says, by a spirit. By a spirit. What does that mean? Well, in Paul's endeavoring to both correct wrong teaching and comfort true believers, he says, I want you to know, like a sort of spiritual father, I'm discipling you and I'm telling you that a spirit perhaps has come in. What kind of spirit? That sounds sort of uh, very mystical and mysterious, doesn't it? I mean, was that something wafting in the room? What's, What's the spirit? Well, I want to break that down for you. Here's what I think that spirit is. I think that spirit, or maybe even perhaps best rendered, spiritual slash prophetic utterance. It's a prophetic utterance. I believe that to be the case because I think this is a shorthand term that's referring to not a sort of wafting, mysterious figure that's unseen, who's trying to penetrate the minds of the Thessalonican believers. I think it is a false prophet who's come into the church claiming himself to be someone who can encourage the Thessalonians and teach the Thessalonians and be beside the Thessalonians so that they are continually comforted and continually encouraged, and he's here, and he's in their midst, and he's asked for a hearing, and this prophet has come aboard somehow and in some way. Now, we don't know. We don't know what the vetting process was in Thessalonica. We don't know the resume of such a man, a curriculum vitae. We don't know. We don't know who he is. We don't know who they are. Could be more than one. A spirit. But we know this. In salvation history, and for these believers in salvation history from eternity to eternity, it was very, very important to hear a prophetic word. You say, what are you talking about? Well, as I've told you before, listen very carefully. Remember that word, salvation history, that phrase. In their part of salvation history, the first century, they did not have the full and complete canon of Holy Scripture like you and I so wonderfully possess. They didn't have essential New Testament books that we would say are essential to us And God, in his providential economy, in the history and growth of the church, in the first century, is continuing to see developed the fullness of the canon of the New Testament. But it's not fully complete at that time. Have I not told you about 1 and 2 Thessalonians, that those two books are some of the earliest New Testament books that even Paul himself has written, maybe only rivaled by the book of Galatians? So these are early, early New Testament books, and perhaps even the Gospels themselves, and assuredly so in my book, haven't even been written yet. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they come later. The book of Revelation, about all kinds of end times events, about all kinds of 
revelation and apocalyptism, all of that hasn't even been written. That's perhaps the last New Testament book, probably in somewhere around A.D. 90, John on the island of Patmos. That, that comes at the end, my friends. So how would you be doing if you had this, this uh, papyrus in your hand, the scroll, this piece of paper, and the only thing you had was first and perhaps Second Thessalonians. It's all you had as far as Scripture. And added to that, because the canon of the New Testament hasn't been completely closed, completed, full of all of the 27 books of the New Testament, God was still communicating by way of spiritual slash prophetic utterances. He was doing so. There's, there's, there's nothing wrong with admitting that fact. Nothing wrong at all. God was choosing in His divine providence to continue to use prophets and New Testament apostles like Paul to start and then finish ultimately their writing ministry and for New Testament prophets to visit local churches to be able then to say, thus saith the Lord. Here is God's will and plan and purpose for you. And to to have these prophetic utterances encourage the church and teach the church. And we know that because Ephesians chapter 4 says that when God was putting salvation history together as far as the New Testament is concerned, there are apostles and prophets and what we might say are missionary evangelists with that third term in Ephesians chapter 4, and then pastor-teachers. One term, preachers, pastors. So in that very deliberate organization of one, two, three, four, you have in the front positions prophets and apostles, apostles, apostles and prophets. So there were legitimate, godly, holy, New Testament, spirit-aided prophets who were speaking on behalf of God in the New Testament in the first century. Now you say, Lance, that hasn't helped me one bit in the discernment category because let's say I'm a, I'm a Thessalonian believer and I'm in the church and I'm sitting like maybe where you are and I'm wondering when that gentleman, whoever he may be, stands up and says, this is the word of the Lord. And all I have, as I said, is maybe having read to me, perhaps even the prior Sunday, 1 Thessalonians alone. Perhaps 2 Thessalonians. But maybe that letter hasn't even arrived as of yet. So what do I do when this prophet stands among us? How do I discern? How do I, how do I know? I think that's what's driving Paul to say in chapter 2, verse 2, a spirit. A spirit. A spiritual prophetic utterance. Now, we're going to get to that because I'm going to show you something for especially those of you who weren't here when I preached on it from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, how you deal with that, how you discern that, okay? Look at, look at the second phrase, or a spoken word. 
if the first category is something like this, a false prophet, now you know a category that you can put this phrase, a false teacher. The false prophet is a person who by their utterance is trying to lead you astray by satanic means. So they come into the church and they say something like this. And of course, they're very skilled at what they do. You may have heard that it was said that in the end times, this will happen. Sort of obliquely quoting Paul. Maybe not by name, so as not to be found out as being a false prophet. So he's very skilled. You have heard that it was said, and then he goes on to tell you, but I say, the day of the Lord is upon us. Now, if you're a Jewish person, most certainly, but even if you're a Gentile person, and Paul has already taught you these things, Paul has already said something like this, verbally. Now, look, I want you to know that the entirety of the Old Testament is prophesying that there is, in fact, a terrible judgment day coming that is called by these prophets of the Old Testament the day of the Lord. And a matter of fact, you can read your Old Testament and you can read almost every single Old Testament prophet. And somewhere you're probably going to find that phrase or something like it, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Capital D. The day of all days. The day of immense judgment. The day of the terrible great tribulation. The day that's like no other day, both before it nor after it. This is that day. Now look, you, you and I are We're believers, we're Christians, we love the Lord, we're sitting at the church in Thessalonica, it's probably a small church, it's in a house, who knows how many believers are there, and it's a young church, only months old. And some prophet comes into your midst and they say, you have heard it said, but I say, and it is coming upon us and it is here. Wouldn't that shake you up? It'd shake me up. Would it alarm you? It would alarm me. Now, I've already heard from the Apostle Paul. He's already been in our midst, and he taught us, and he's already now writing us back because he may have heard, certainly he has, that there are those who are coming in and trying to mislead and deceive. And now I might be asking myself, who do you, who do you believe? Who do you believe? I mean, look, it, it doesn't look like our world's getting any better. I mean, even as I am a Gentile convert to Christianity and I was serving all these pantheon of gods in my Gentile days and now I'm just serving this one God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and now I'm learning all kinds of new things, but perhaps I was deceived the first time, not now. Perhaps now I'm actually being told with what I was deceived with before. Who's telling the truth? I don't know. So, it's not just a false prophet who comes in. Now it's a false teacher. It's a false teacher, a spoken word, Paul says here, a spoken word. That's what I would see as a, the equivalent 
not a false prophet who comes in and and says, I'm speaking spirit-inspired utterances. This is a man who's coming in, and he's using, let's say, documents. Perhaps he's even using some of those Old Testament prophets. Perhaps he's crafting sentences. And, oh, by the way, his oratory is top of the line. He's really good, both in what he says and how he says it. It's how he says it. This is, this is very confusing. And Paul says, look, I'm telling you, whether it's a prophetic announcement about supposed facts that the day, the terrible day of the Lord's judgment is just about to be unleashed upon the whole world, I don't want you to be quickly shaken or alarmed about even a spoken word from a traveling teacher who is attempting to do the very same thing that that false prophet is doing to deceive you. I tell you, he's someone other, none other than a false teacher who's come in your midst to do the very thing that you're now experiencing. You're shaken. You're alarmed. So you got to watch out, my friends, for not only false prophets, but false teachers. They're not saying, maybe, necessarily, I've got a prophetic word that the Holy Spirit has energized me to communicate to you. He may come, up, come in from a completely different angle and say, I want to speak a spoken word from the very prophets themselves. And if you don't know your Bible, if you don't know your Old Testament, you could be in a lot of trouble. And think about these Gentile people in Thessalonica. They may not even have the Old Testament. It may be presented to them. Surely, and we praise God for the opportunity that they may get it in time, somehow, somewhere, from Paul himself, from others. But this is a months old church, and they're listening to someone who's saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. Or what's even more critical is number three. Or a letter seeming to be from us. Not only did the prophetic orator, and not only did the preacher, the false teacher, say, this is the way, walk ye in it, but now somebody's masquerading a false letter, and it may even say Paul on it. Oh, this is so wonderful. God has given us third Thessalonians, and yet it seems to be contradictory. Can someone show me how to figure out what is true, what is false, what is good, what is bad, what is helpful, what is dangerous, what is life-giving versus life-killing? We've got to have help. Is it no wonder that Paul is eager to write Second Thessalonians to them, to get in their minds as quickly as he can? And to tell them, don't be quickly shaken, don't be alarmed. And does he not say this in verse 15 of this same chapter, chapter 2? I've just told you, and I read it to you earlier in this message, he's he's told them that the day of the Lord's not going to come until this happens and this happens and this happens, and then he says this in verse 15, so then brothers, stand firm, 
and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now you say, boy, that's so comforting. It's the real Paul writing a real letter and warning us not to believe the other letters and the false prophets and the false teachers and the sham letters that may even have Paul's name on it. I'm so comforted. Except we've left something incredibly important out of the mix. And that is, how can I discern? How can I discern between all these things? What do I do? Well, that's why you have Paul's teaching once again in this text. It's not going to happen until this happens. And, oh, let me tell you about the son of destruction, the man of lawlessness. And he's going to do this, and he's going to come into the temple, and he's going to proclaim that he's God. And this is exactly the way it's going to happen. And I'm going to tell you there's a restrainer who's both an it and a person probably or a being of some kind. And what he's going to do is restrain for a time, and then the restraints are going to be pulled off. And then all hell, literally speaking, is going to come out. And he says in verse 5, do you not remember? This might even be a wooden and literal translation, but it, but it bears the woodenness and the literalness. Do you not remember? Are you not recalling that when I was still with you, I continually told you these things? That's the sense of the verb of the text. I, I continually, I pounded it in your mind. I told you everything and often that you needed to hear. Don't be alarmed. Don't be quickly shaken. And is it no wonder that he says in verse 17 of chapter 3, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. What does he mean? I think it's two things authenticity and authority. Authenticity and authority. I am with this letter, and the first one I sent to you, probably through Timothy, this is the authentic Paul. This is my signature. This is the way I write. This is the way for you to discern between the false guys and this guy, me, Paul. You say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to need some more. I'm going to need some more help because you just said a moment ago that somebody could try to fabricate Paul's very name. They could try to make it look like it's Paul's letter. It's seemingly from us, Paul even admits, seeming to be from us. So you've got to be discerning. And I think to be discerning for us and for our day We've got to go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Would you go there with me? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, for those of you who are already with us and I already preached a message on these verses, you can be patient with those who weren't here as they listen carefully. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I dare say that in some ways, this has been such a misunderstood passage And I hope to give clarity to you by looking at verse 19 through verse 22. 
1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 22. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. All right, now let's just for maybe five, ten minutes or so, just sort of take that apart so that you and I are actually given instructions by Paul, not necessarily all of it for us in our day, but we can see what he was doing to encourage the Thessalonians. You say, what do you mean this is not for our day? I thought every scripture is profitable for us. Yes, it is, but don't forget what I said. What I told you before was when these prophecies were being given by the Holy Spirit through the true prophet to the people of God, the canon of Scripture had not yet been fully complete. That's why in my judgment, though many will disagree with me on this point, I don't believe that we need nor have true prophetic utterances today because we have the completed full canon of Holy Scripture as I am showing it to you now. I don't, I don't believe I need a prophetic utterance. If we're going to talk about prophecy, let's expand the term and say, this is the prophetic word. And so, what does he say? Well, it seems like you're being contradictory to the Scripture, Lance, because it says there in verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. Well, if you said before that Spirit might be analogous to, if not exactly the same as, a prophetic utterance, which I believe it is, then do not quench the Spirit means don't quench the prophetic utterance that comes. But remember the timing. Remember salvation history. It's not 21st century, this is a 1st century document, and at that time they didn't have all the written scripture, and so when he says, I'm continuing to lead you both by a letter, like 1 Thessalonians, and by the prophetic word, don't quench it when it comes. Don't quench the true prophetic word when it comes. Listen to it. Live by it. That's as much a part of divine revelation as the written word itself. You say, wait, 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 wait. It's the same. It's equivalent. Yes, it is. And here's what I believe. Every prophetic utterance that God believed that you and I needed as a prophetic utterance, whether it's in the first or the 21st century, is now revealed right here. If there was something that they needed, God made sure they got it. If there's something that we need in this day and in this hour, God's making sure we have it. He took care of them then. He's taking care of us now. For them, they didn't have all the written Scripture that you and I possess and that we're so grateful to have, but he made sure that through the prophetic office of a New Testament prophet that they were well cared for. Don't you praise God for something like that? You say, well, is it too easy to misunderstand? I mean, I've got black words on a white page. If I'm reliant upon the guy who's standing behind the lectern and he says, thus saith the Lord, I'm not so sure. God wanted it that way. God taught them that way. He nurtured them that way. And we ought not despise that at all. In fact, isn't that 
the very next thing, verse 20, do not despise prophecies. Do not despise them. They're from God. Now, I know, I know just what I said. Don't despise them. People read this verse, and they say, you see, you see, those of you who are called cessationists, you you believe that this prophetic role and office and function has ceased. I don't. I believe they are still happening today, and I believe that there are still prophetic utterances happening alongside the written Word of God. There are churches that believe that, doctrinal statements that affirm that. And I believe, and this is a mind-blower, and I believe those who believe that can, and some of them most certainly are, very dedicated Christians. Very dedicated Christians. We just happen not to agree on this matter. We just aren't on the same page regarding this. Some of them would even say, though I believe in continuing not revelation, though that's very debated, I believe that God still gives us a word, maybe small w, not the word, capital W, but when he does, everything must be adjudicated by this word. Now, it sounds great. It really does. And some of them choose to believe that point and live by that. And you know what? I could be dead wrong about what I'm saying to you this morning. I just don't think I am. And it could be that in the glorious future of the great beyond, we find that Lance was wrong. That there are prophetic utterances going on today that the true Holy Spirit is giving to people, not classified by them as divine revelation, but classified by them as, let's call it, divine intentions. Um a sway by the Lord to give you some level of comfort in your downcast position. It's not a word, capital W, but it's a word, an impression, an intuition, and God is wanting you as a personal believer to be encouraged, not a thousand others, just you. And people operate that way in the church. There are churches where someone will come to some other believer in that church, and they say, brother, sister, I could be wrong about this, but I think the Lord, not by way of divine revelation, I think the Lord wants me to encourage you about that job search that you're on. And I want you to know that I think the Lord is giving me a kind of impression, an indication for your personal encouragement is that your job search will end soon and you will be employed. That's just an example. Now, could that happen? Perhaps. Does that happen? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think there's a need. You say, there's not a need to comfort an individual Christian who's downcast about the fact that they're not working? How many passages do you and I know where that self-same Christian could be encouraged by something I know is directly from God himself? And it's right here. I don't even have to wonder. I don't even have to stumble. Well, I, I think it's a, a good word for you. I, 
think it's something that you might consider. I could, I, I could be wrong, I, it, but I think I'm okay in saying that the Lord has given me an opportunity to tell you that this is possibly something that you can use. I don't think so. I'd rather go to the rock-solid words on the page of Holy Writ and say, brother, sister, I don't know about your individual situation, but I know this. God in his providence will encourage your heart in whatever way he chooses to to do so in his providence, and you will be encouraged. He'll come alongside you. He'll nurture you in the faith. And that job situation that you're particularly concerned about, don't worry, pray about everything. Remember RPG? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. Now look, I don't have to wonder whether or not that's some kind of divine intention, intuition, some kind of small W. I'm talking large W. I'm talking about something that cannot and will not ever be proven wrong, ever. This is that word. This is that word. So, I'm not too quench, if I was living in the first century, what the Spirit is uttering through the prophetic man and by his prophetic message. And I'm not to despise that, but Paul doesn't stop there. What does he say? Even to the first century Thessalonians, verse 21, but test what? Everything. Test it. Examine it. What every self-same Christian in a church that believes in what they call continuationism, that we call cessationism. We believe those kinds of gifts have ceased because the canon of Scripture is closed, because there are no longer any more apostles, because Pentecost has come and gone, and those three unique, unrepeatable events are not then intending for us to have more prophetic word in anything else than the Word of God itself in the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 of the New. And because of that, Even today, any guy that stands in this pulpit, anybody who comes along and says, I've got a new eschatological schema, listen to this. Or, I'm telling you it's the will of the Lord for you to do this or that. I've got that principle, verse 21, down pat. I've got to test that. I've got to test that. So here's what you and I, here's how we can apply that 21st century truth of that very verse, test everything. And that is, I'm going to test everything by this book, which implies I've got to know the book, which implies that I'm trying to practically help another Christian to apply the book, which is doctrine and devotion. And when I do, and when that testing comes, and someone says to me, I believe it's God's will that I go and move here and do this, and here's how I came to know it was God's will. I was laying on my bed, and I was trying to figure out, should I drive there? Should I take the train? Should I have a plane? And if it's God's will for me to get there, he's going to show me by way of some kind of prophetic word or sign. And so I was laying in my bed, and I set my alarm But before my alarm could go off, I looked at the clock in the middle of the night, and the Lord woke me up, and I saw that my alarm clock in big red LED numbers says 747. (laughs) 
there it is. The Lord has spoken. That's actually a true story. And of course, your groans are necessary because that's not how God leads. You can test that one with Braille. You don't have to know anything but to say, that's not how God does it. God doesn't give you His will by seeing 747 in your clock and thinking, okay, it's by a plane, I should go rather than stay here. Here's what you do. You test everything, but in our 21st century language, you test everything by the Word of God, and here's what you do. You hold fast what is good. That word hold fast, if you remember, cling to. Cling to it. Don't let it go. Why? Because it is from God. But then it says, if it's not, Abstain from every form of evil. You know what it's calling? False teaching, false teachers, false prophets? That it's evil. And every form of it is evil. Whether it is, and this is Paul's words now, whether it is a spiritual prophetic utterance or a spoken word or even seemingly a letter from us, I tell you, in every form of those three things, what you've just been handed is evil. Reject it. That, that word abstain, stay aloof from. Stay away from. That's, that's the complete opposite of cling to. And do you know that that actual Greek word for hold fast and abstain is a form of the same word. One is saying, cling to it like it's your life. Divine revelation. The other, get away from it as fast as you possibly can. And when that happens, my friends, you are living out what 1 Thessalonians 5 and 2 Thessalonians 2 are telling you. The divine revelation of how Paul knows that they are shaken wrongly and that they are alarmed wrongly is because he's already taught them about these end-time events. Don't be shaken. I've already given you a word, and it's me, Paul, and I'm an apostle. Don't be worried. Don't be shaken. Rely on the verbal and written word of an apostle of Jesus Christ. But if in your discernment you find that there's somebody in your midst and they are telling you certain things and you are not sure, test it. Test it. Has it come from an apostle? Is it consistent with apostolic doctrine? Is it seemingly coming from someone who is an authoritative source? Is it appearing to be authentic then in the 21st century, you and I say, let's measure it against this. This is our plumb line. This is our standard. This is our code of conduct. And this is our book of correction. And you find it when you've got your head in the book. Do you and I know that part of the problem, and surely we do, where Christians are misunderstanding and led astray and deceived like Paul is talking about in 2 Thessalonians 2 because they don't have their head in the book. They're not reading, studying, praying so as not to be deceived. 
You say, how much? How long? How potent is my reading? That's for you to decide with your God. And when you do, I dare say with a good heart and a right attitude, you'll be in that book far longer and more than you ever thought because our life depends on it. Let's pray together. Father, this is a sure word of prophecy. This this word from you, it's divine revelation. The 39 books of the old and the 27 of the new. And when Paul tells us, like he told the Thessalonians 20 centuries ago, stick to, stand firm, hold on to, be ever so vigilant to put your hands on the traditions that Paul has laid down, he and his apostolic associates. Stand firm. Don't be moved. Don't be swayed. Father, how can I not be moved? How can I not be swayed? How can I not be alarmed and quickly shaken? I, 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 I'm just a, a layperson. I, I, I need a preacher. I need help. I need instruction. I need correction. I, I need to get my heart, my mind, and the Word. I, I know that. And will you help me, Lord? Will you come alongside me? Will you give me the energy and the focus and the desire to stop watching this, stop doing this, whatever it may be, so that I can spend more time preparing for my final exam? When I go to be with you, not shaken, not alarmed, confident, bold, assured that in fact the terrible judgment of the day of the Lord has not yet come. What a great prayer of a Thessalonian believer. And what a great prayer for us. And even more so for us, we're even going to be more accountable because we have the full and complete canon of Holy Scripture. We've got it all. Every jot, every tittle, every word, every sentence. And it's for us to read and contemplate and pray through and understand. And and that's our doctrine and devotion. Lord, don't make me an indolent, lazy, bored Christian when it comes to your word. Make me a vibrant, living, dynamic, voracious reader of your word. Throw off many vain things from my life, things that won't last, things that are even in and of themselves sometimes so very absurd. Don't let me think another minute about such trifles. And Lord, we know that you're not asking us to forever tape the Bible to our eyes. We know that. We have responsibilities. We've got lives. We've got babies. We've got work. We've got responsibilities. We've got cars to wash, houses to clean. We know that, Lord. But you've given us so many hours in the week that if we assessed such hours, we'd all be ashamed, myself included, about
how trivial things sometimes make up so many of those hours. Let us, let us regrip, let us retool, refashion our lives, our minds, our hope on the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And let us know how pleasing we are to you when we come to die. And you say to us, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your Lord. May it be so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.